Welcome to the Kofu Mama Show. <laughs> Today we have Dr. Christian Heim, who I have just shocked with my wonderful introduction, I guess. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks so much for being on the show. So we have uh, Dr. Heim. He is an award-winning psychiatrist, a music professor, and a Churchill Fellow. And he has been doing this for 20 years um, in his continuing practice. And he has heard the stories of thousands of people. So you have combined science and entertainment. And also you're very humorous as well. So please um, tell us that you've written this book about um, seven types of love. Um, yes. Can you tell us about the inspiration for your book? Look, thank you for that question, Sarah. It's actually a very interesting question because um, as a psychiatrist, you're right, I get to hear the stories of thousands of people. And psychiatry is a very interesting area because it brings together science, because there's a science of um, medicine, pharmacology, uh, pathology, anatomy and physiology. But psychiatry also reaches into non-scientific areas like spirituality, mm -hmm. religion, meaning-making, philosophy. And when you talk to somebody who is right in front of you going through a really difficult time, all these things come together. Right. So the reason that I mentioned that is because a purely scientific approach does not work, Right. Nobody, no single person is a robot, okay? Yes. Uh, giving a medication or even giving a psychotherapy does not mean that you're going to get a certain outcome because there's always the human variable. You have a human being in front of you. And as you know, because you live with human beings, human beings are thinking, feeling, acting, willing, just, just like Talia at the moment, she's, she's doing what she wants. She is expressing herself. Right. And because of that, the interaction is always uh, a lot more complex. Mm -hmm. And so what I find and what I found over the years is that in spite of whatever medication I give and medications help and whatever psychotherapy I give and psychotherapy helps, what actually heals a person or a big proponent of it, big component of that, is actually the relationship. You end up in a professional working relationship with somebody. So mm -hmm. what does that mean? Well, again, you're a human being. You're in relationship with other people. Right. Relationship at, it, at its essence actually means love. But in our world, love has come to mean the person that you are in love with the person that you share intimacy with, and that's love, right? Right. And that got me thinking, well, no, love is actually a lot more complex than that. Mm -hmm. And although our scientific thinking always puts love together with the purpose of survival. So the only reason that we have love is that as human beings, we need to reproduce so that we can survive as a species. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's not the whole story. That's yeah. not the only reason that we love people. That's not the only reason that we live. Survival is not 
all of it. We want to survive and thrive. Well, what does that mean? We grow as people. We grow together as people. So this brought me more into this area of love. And then I thought, well, we don't actually have a good understanding of what love is. Uh, from a scientific point of view, as I said, we couple love together with reproduction and survival. But you know that when you live together with somebody, you have a certain love. When you have a child, that's a different love. When you have a good professional relationship with somebody, there's respect there. Do we call that love? What about your parents? Is that a different type of love? And then we have friends. And that's a different type of love again. And so I came up with this idea to bring together the scientific evidence for love together with the ancient wisdom of love. And so I went back to the Greeks and found that they had a lot more words for love than we do. And so I put mm -hmm. together this book, The Long and the Short of It, to describe love because we don't have a good understanding of it. And I thought if we don't have a good understanding of love, how can we show love in its various forms to different people? So that gave the birth of this particular book, which combines ancient wisdom together with psychology, the science and the neuroscience of love, and the practicalities of how we can show it more to each other. And I hate to use a cliche, but this world could use more love, Sarah. <laughs> Yes, definitely. I totally agree with you on that. That's so true that we have there there is so much love in the world and we don't we don't classify it as that. Um yes. could you tell us more about what you mean by like the ancient Greek philosophy or what what is what do they what was that inspiration? So they have they classify different types of love as well or yes, yes. So they have many more words for love. Exactly how many words? is mm -hmm. is contentious but uh let's say the word for friendship is philia okay mm -hmm. so it's an affection it's right. it's a brother or sisterly affection that you have for somebody whereas the man and woman love that we call eros okay comes from that greek word eros it's the it's the only real sexual love there is and then mm -hmm. there's the love of children and the love within a family and the greeks call this storge so mm -hmm. it's a belonging love. Uh, so somebody born into a family loves that family because they belong to that family. And that, that also accounts for the love that you have for parents and siblings. And let's right. face it, we, we may have brothers and sisters that we don't even get along with, all right, that yeah. we argue with a lot. And yet, if you think about it, you still love those people but it's yes. a different kind of a love. And so right. I went through and I found seven different types of love based on the, the ancient Greek words for love. Oh, I see. So which one of these love types um, is more relevant to our listeners as parenting children in today's world? And how does that all well, work? Yeah, well, the most important love and perhaps the strongest love that we have on earth is storge. And uh, this is the ancient Greek word for belonging love, a family love, belonging the love that, love. yeah, yeah. So, so uh, as parents, um, you have children and they belong to you. They belong as part of this family. And you feel that same sense of belonging to your parents as well. But another interesting thing happens when you fall in love with somebody and you commit yourselves to that 
person, and then you're together with that person for a long time, what started off as eros love, a sexual attraction and uh, an attachment becomes storge love. The longer you're together, the longer that you feel you belong together. Okay. Mm. And, and this is actually what makes divorces so painful. It's, it's, right. it's actually not the loss of the Eros love because people can find Eros love with somebody else. But after you've been together with somebody for 10 years, there's a part of you that thinks, I belong with this person. Why couldn't we work it out? We should actually belong together. And so that, that's why for the ancient Greeks, this storge love, parental love, love of a family mm -hmm. is probably the strongest, the most important love that we have. So how can we apply this as parents? Um, is there is there certain things that, is it just an innate, it's an innate love or is there a way that we should be holding this love in a more healthy way? Yeah, well, firstly, I believe it is, in, I believe that it is an innate love. Uh, mammals, for example, all take care of their young. Uh, we, we if, if you go for uh, a walk and you're um, near, let's say, some bird nests, you know, you'll get some birds that'll come and, and swoop you to protect their young. They are zealous for protecting their young. And it's very interesting because um, an ancient word, the, the word zealous and jealous actually mm -hmm. have the same root. And it right. means a strong, protective sort of love, okay? Uh. Don't mess with my love, all right? Okay. That sort of feeling. And as a mother, you would have that feeling for your child. You would die for your child because it's like, don't mess with my child, okay? Mm -hmm. I need to do what's best for my child. Right. And uh, look, especially for mothers, you remember when you first give birth to a child, that child is connected to you. The child comes out of your body and is connected by the umbilicus in a very strong way. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's totally amazing. It's, yes. it's, it's just one of those things that we take for granted, all right? Yes. And then, of course, for the child to become an adult, there are separations along the way. And, and one of the first separations is cutting the umbilical cord, okay? Mm -hmm. But you still hold it close. It still is a part of you. It belongs to you. In fact, a, uh, an infant's mind for the first six months, does not even realize that it's separate from its mother, okay? It, it actually thinks that the mother and themselves are the same. And only later do you get this idea of separation. So that mm -hmm. particular love is, is very strong and very important. I noticed how you um, say for in relationships, you change from one love type to the other love type. So for, for mothers, does it also change because there's a, a separation in that? How, does, yes. how do mothers go through that process? I feel that um, we're not that consciously realizing that separation is no, like, how does true. that affect, how does that affect, how does that affect mothers, um, you know, in their daily life as their children get older? Do they, okay. do they have this separation kind of anxiety? I know there's postpartum depression, of course. Um, yes. But, but how does, how does that affect mothers? Okay. Uh, so, so firstly, uh, postpartum depression. Um, 
that has more to do with changing from being a two-person family to now being a three-person family and how that changes your identity. Because the, the, the overwhelming thing about becoming a mother is that all of a sudden, and, you've, and this is felt most acutely with the first child, I am now responsible for another human being. Right. Okay. Right. And, and that's, sorry, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's mind-blowing. Okay. That's an awesome responsibility. I know that, that we have done it through all of our ages, but it is still an amazing responsibility. And, and see, here's the aim. When you have a child, your aim is actually to separate from that child so that by the time they're about 2025, 20, they're an independent adult ready to get on in the world, okay? So yeah. unfortunately, it means that from the word go, there's this idea of separation, gradual separation for about 20 or 25 years. Now, separation is painful, okay? Yes. <laughs> it's terrible. Like uh, uh, my, my wife and I at the moment, um, uh, we haven't had our boys living with us for about three years now. They're, they're out in the world doing what they want to. And it's still painful. We miss them. Why do yes. we miss them? Because they belonged to us. Yes. Now, in a sense, we have to respect them as separate adults. But we remember when they first came out of the womb, when they took their first steps, when they first they said their first words. So separation is painful. So yes. what tends to happen is mothers uh, that are listening will, will find that their idea of where they are in relationship to their children is always a few years behind where they actually are, okay? So, uh, so when your child is 10, you kind of think your child is still seven or eight. And when your child is a teenager, you still think that your child is only about 12 or 13, okay? And, <laughs> and when your child's an adult, you still think that they're still an adolescent or a, or a teenager, okay? So we're always right. a few steps behind, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, because we don't want to make those painful transitions. And I'm not saying that that's um, uh, unhealthy. It's actually, it's actually fine because they want to feel that love from you. But there will come a time when you have to separate, yes. I see. Um, so you mentioned, you know, we have these different relationships between mom and dad, right? And then we have yeah. um, our family relationships and then we have yeah. also the uh, friend relationships as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so how does how does the how does the how does the friend relationship differ from those of the you know the family relationship? So the most important difference between family and friends is that when you have a friendship, it is a chosen relationship. It in fact, it is the most chosen relationship, okay? And there's a saying that you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends, okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and we tend to say this when family members are annoying us, okay? Um, but the truth is none of us would actually give up on our family members, okay? We, we want it to go well, and it's yeah. because there are so many, uh, it's so close that uh the relationship among family members is under pressure, all right? So if you, have, if you have a sister who has a different belief system than you do, right, there's a tension because she wants you to accept her, 
okay? And you want her to accept you, but you want to be yourselves at, at the same time. So there's right. this tension. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a friendship, friendships normally get together because of some common ground in the first place, because of shared beliefs, shared activities, uh, shared things in life, okay? Right. And because friendships are not as intense, if a friend changes their beliefs or becomes annoying to you, then what happens is the friendship just cools off, right? right? You just see them a bit less or you may stop seeing them altogether. You can't do that with your sister, all right? Mm -hmm. You can't do yeah. that with your parent. You can't right. stop seeing them. Uh, and, and that puts pressure there. But just because the pressure's there does not mean that the love isn't there. Mm-hmm. Yes. In fact, the whole reason there's pressure is because there's so much love. I see. So you mentioned science and love in your book. So how does sci the science part help us understand more about love? Okay. Okay. So um, the ancient wisdom uh, helps us categorize the love. So I, I, I talk about the sexual love in Eros, the friendship love we talked about in Philia. Uh, we talked about the family love in Storge, and the other types of love that I talk about are mentoring love, okay, mm -hmm. and love for strangers as well. So there are, there are all these different types of love. And then there's love just for things, like when somebody says, I love golf or I love music, okay? Right. That too is a love, okay? <clears throat> now, scientifically, we have this one word, love. And science does tend to equate love and sex, okay? Mm -hmm. Or more accurately, it equates love and reproduction. Mm -hmm. So it looks at the human life cycle and sees, okay, so uh, two people get together. First of all, um, uh, there's a lust phase where your hormones uh, make you think, okay, that's, that's a hot person. I want to be with that person, all right? Mm -hmm. And then there's an attraction phase where you want to be just with this one person. And then there's an attachment phase where you commit right. yourself to this person and you start spending years with them, okay? Yeah. But the goal of that, as science sees, is reproduction, is to have children. Now, we actually know that that's not quite right either because people uh, will often choose not to have children. Okay. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that there's no love there? Well, of course not. They love each other and they have decided to express their love in however they express their love between the two of us. And children is not part of that equation. Right. Some people decide not to have children. Some people choose not to have children. Uh, and love is still there. So already on that basis, the scientific view of love is inadequate. There's mm. not enough there. I see. Okay. So, so it doesn't quite cover all the things that are going on. However, in these last 20 years, uh, brain imaging in particular and our understanding of uh, brain chemicals has increased amazingly. So, so we know that by and largely this feeling that we call love is mediated by a brain chemical called oxytocin. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, oxytocin mediates love and trust. But interestingly, it's also the chemical that tells the female body it's time to start the birthing process. 
or uh -huh. it's also the chemical that tells a female body, baby's crying, okay, time to feed it some milk. And so you, you feel this letdown into your breasts and that you, you have to feed your child, okay? That's mm -hmm. all mediated by oxytocin. And we don't know why. We just know that it is. I see. Yeah, I, I was like oxytocin. Wait, oxytocin. What is that? What is that? <laughs> and then, yeah, you're right. It's due to breastfeeding because, you know, I do do a lot of um, research into um, breastfeeding as well. So, yeah. yeah. And there's also a chemical um, while breastfeeding that's released right between the, the mother and the child. Is that also oxytocin? Uh, I I, I believe so. I, I, I don't know the separate chemical, although people uh, do say that vasopressin is also uh, uh, part of this whole process. So, but, but that feeling of love and trust is oxytocin mediated primarily. Yeah. I see. <clears throat> um, so you're also, you know, in, you mentioned brain development, you know. Um, yeah. Are there steps that parents can take to provide the maximum amount of support for a child as they develop and grow? Oh, wow. That's a huge question. I mean, the, the answer, of course, is yes. All right. Because there's something in us that wants the best for our children. Mm -hmm. Okay. They don't have right. to be the greatest in the world, but, but we all have this, this wish, this strong desire that they become the best people that they possibly can be. And so we want right. to provide the best um, environment for them. And look, ac according to uh, a leading scientific theory, which is uh, called attachment theory, which I'm sure that you know, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the whole idea is that you provide them with a safe, secure environment so that a child at whatever age can go out and explore the world and the world can get a bit frightening and it's not friendly all the time but they can come back and feel secure, right? Right. And so that environment could be your arms, it could be your house, or it could be your greater family, okay? Just somewhere where the child can feel really secure. And that, that makes for optimal development to have that arrangement. And uh, look, we, we live in an age where we probably overparent rather than underparent. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're all trying to do too much. Right. But there is there is one area where we could actually all improve in. Okay, because mm -hmm. uh, our society has changed just amazingly these last twenty years. Right. And uh, we are scientifically finding out the um, the problems with screen technology. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that we talked about this uh, before, but um, the more time that you spend with a screen, mm -hmm. the less time you spend looking into somebody else's eyes or talking with them. Okay. Right. right. So, for example, the World Health Organization has actually said that uh, children for the first year of life shouldn't be exposed to electronic devices at all. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that, that's a really big ask. Okay. Right. And they've actually said that children under the age of five should not be exposed to electronic devices for more than an hour a day. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, now that's, that's actually quite big. All right. And right. Uh, when the World Health Organization puts that together, they're, they're looking at what's best for the global health, health of everybody. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So what are the what are the effects down the road if they're exposed for you know for longer you know not seeing eyes how does that actually how does that affect them in the in later in life Yeah, yeah. Uh, now when the when the World Health Organization put that together, they were thinking in terms of activity. All right, that children need to sleep well, but they need to be active during the day to be healthy. Okay, because um, obesity and depression can come about because of inactivity, all right? But see, here, here's what we know about screen activity on the brain down the road. And this is, uh, this is actually a, um, a study that came out of China. And what they did was they got uh, university students that were really heavy users of devices, okay? Like 10, 11 hours a day. And what they did is they measured a part of their brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, that's in the limbic system. It's kind of close to the center of the brain. And what it does is uh, one of its main functions is empathy, how we get on with other people, how we read other people's cues, okay? Right. So we look at somebody's face and we can say, oh, that person's a little bit anxious or that person's a little bit sad. Well, that person's angry. Why is that person angry? That's mm -hmm. all mediated in the anterior cingulate gyrus. Okay, right. so for these people who are using devices really heavily, okay, their anterior cingulate cortex was shrinking. Oh. Okay? Wow. Now, that's, that's, that's actually a devastating finding. That means that the brain was taking energy away from that area because they weren't using it, which means that they didn't have as much empathy for other people and mm -hmm. they would be able to read social cues a lot less, which means that they have a problem and right. then they're ill-equipped for that problem. <clears throat> so yeah. uh, what's really surprising is how fast this happens, okay, mm -hmm. because we all use our devices and we like the advantages of it, but yes. we're just finding out what it does to the human brain. And it means that there will actually be less love in the world if we have less empathy because we look at each other's eyes less, we look at each other's face less, and we talk to each other less. Mm -hmm. So, so as a psychiatrist, yeah. I'm really worried about that. <laughs> that That's a huge deal. I mean, it is. That's a huge deal. So there actually is physically, scientifically less empathy in the world when we have more, you know, screen time and more that's devices right. and more technology. Um, that's right. That's a big thing here on our podcast, our technologically advanced podcast here where I'm looking yes. at you through the screen. Um, that's exactly right. <laughs> actually is um, in the long run is hurting our, you know, actual brain development for empathy. That's right. That is that's a right. big one. That that's, is a big that, one. That's a really big one. That's a really big one. Now, it's not all or nothing. This does not mean that technology is the downfall of humankind. It doesn't mean that we've got to switch off entirely and go back to living in trees, okay? <laughs> uh, because, because what we're doing at the moment is technology dependent, and it's good because we're able to get this information out to people. Yes. World banking, uh, booking airlines, being able to communicate with people across the world. These are all fantastic things, you know. Yes. We, we don't want to take those away. But what we do want to try to curb is the way that we use screens for entertainment, all right? Mm -hmm. 
because screens give us massive dopamine hits. And look, I'm as guilty as everybody else, all right? I can sit on a screen and surf the net for hours and I have to tell myself to stop because my brain mm -hmm. likes the dopamine hits. Right. But here's the thing. You don't get any oxytocin through the screen. Mm -hmm. You don't get any beta endorphins or any serotonin, okay? Whereas when you're engaging with another person, okay, it takes more effort, but you get a full gamut of brain chemicals that make your brain thrive, okay? Mm -hmm. And see, here's, so, here's the problem. Getting on with any person is a lot of... There's a lot of work, all right? Yes, uh, yes. Couples argue a lot. Siblings right. argue. Parents right. and children argue. It's, right. it's, it's a lot of work. Whereas when you open a screen, the screen is not going to argue with you, right? Right, right. But it doesn't love you either. It doesn't right. care for you either, okay? Right. It's never going to ask if you've had a bad day and mm -hmm. actually care about that, okay? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, can you tell us some practical tips about how to avoid screen time? Okay, Sarah, that's a really important question because it's all right having the theory, but how do you actually do it? And uh, yes, there, there are a few things. And uh, one of the main things is to have one day a week where you just say, okay, all devices are turned off, right? And so all of a sudden, if you have that as a rule, that means you'll be looking for stuff to do, interacting with other people. You may actually go for a walk. You may actually have some more conversations. You may play some board games. Uh, but whatever it'll be done, it won't involve a screen. Another way, and this is what I tell particularly people who are in their um, uh, early 20s, is the amount of screen time you should have is work, plus one hour maximum, all right? Because the work we're going to have to do on screens, it's all the entertainment time that we have on screens that is taking us away from each other. Okay, a third tip is during meals. Okay, firstly, there are a lot of people not having meals together anymore, so we've got to get that back. Uh, but right. once you've got that back, that all phones get turned off, all screens get turned off, for 10 minutes before a meal to 10 minutes after a meal, okay? So it's not just suck, suck, but, you know, it's, it's got this, this whole sort of timing in it. And, and the other thing is, that, and uh, particularly with teenagers who like having parties, or if you have a dinner party and you're inviting friends over, uh, you just gather all the mobile phones, you put them in a box, and you keep them in a room where they can't be heard. So if they go off, so what? Nobody hears it, okay? So that right. the people that you're with have got your 100% attention. Yeah. And then when you leave the party, you can see who's been trying to contact you, okay, and what you've missed out on and take care of it then. So they're my four main tips on cutting down screen time because it is a battle and it's a battle in myself. It's in the battle uh, of the people who are close to me, but the more you can do it, you know what? You start enjoying picnics again or walks in the bush. And that's really good. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for those tips. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, my God. Oh, we can use way, those. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, we've got scientific evidence to show that we, we all need to be spending at least an afternoon out in nature every week. Okay. Uh, to, to get the effect of 
the de-stressing from mm -hmm. all the screens and the way that our lives run. So nature right. is another way of doing it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, okay. I mean, we're lucky. We're lucky. This is our nature. This is our, uh, this is I, our, uh, it's beautiful. Where we live here. You see that? That's yeah. I'm, I'm right looking here. at all the trees that you've got outside there. Yeah. That is absolutely spectacular. That yeah. is lovely. We're, um, we live here in, um, Beito district. So it's yeah. the hot spring district of, yeah, of Taipei, of Taipei city. Yeah. And so we get to That's just beautiful. walk outside in nature. And we, we do, we do go out in nature a lot just because it's just well, that, so that beautiful. That makes a big usually. difference. That's very, very good. Yes. That's I'm so good. glad. I'm so glad that we're, that part is taken care of the screen part time. We're going to work on that. We're going to work on that. <laughs> it's all right. We're working on it too. We've all got to work on it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Because yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I realized I bring that up in so many conversations with the parents because um, I feel like it's just such a big problem right now. So it, I, it is a big problem. It is a big problem. And it's the number one thing that's getting in the way of love. Okay. Yeah. Sarah, we have, we have so many studies to show that people are having uh, less sex because they're spending more time uh, watching films. Okay. People are talking less because we're all on these devices, okay? So th yeah. there's a lot of evidence gathering it. And um, there's one good book. It's called Mind Change by mm -hmm. Susan Greenfield. And it, it's a 2014 book. But what it does is it goes through and shows what screen technology is doing to our brains. Oh, it's my gosh. Good. Mind Change, <laughs> Susan Greenfield. That's good to know. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, Vince, we need to we need to get our child off that device. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Oh my gosh, the sooner the better. <laughs> the sooner the better. That's right, and we got to. It's do hard. It. It's hard. It is. It is hard. I mean, we have so many toys, so many things. So it's just, just it's just actually putting the effort in. That's the end of the yeah. day. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And that's what's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So having more and more interactions will help us, you know, build back that, that brain, that part of our brain. Yes, most definitely. And in fact, during the COVID crisis, the world has gone through, uh, many people are rediscovering just how important people are. Okay. Right. Get me back to work. Give me back that boss that I used to argue with, okay? At least it was a human being, okay? <clears throat> because all this virtual stuff, this being cooped up inside, this is not good for my brain. Depression rates and anxiety rates are rising during the COVID crisis. And the one good thing is that we can understand how much we need each other. Yes, definitely. So on that note, so... And uh, to our parents, uh, the advice would be to just make sure that we're interacting and making sure our children yep. are interacting with their eyes yep. and not our screens. I love that. So yep. thank you so much for um, that very informative chat. Um, I learned a lot and I am going to make sure that today we are completely off the screens and spending face-to-face <laughs> -face time and in getting yes. your oxytocin. <laughs>
Yes, that's exactly right, Sarah, because that's, that's the expression of love, okay? Just any interaction. All right. Well, there should be more love in the world. Let's all make more love in the world and more empathy. Thank you so much for chatting with us. And to our listeners, make sure we listen to this message. Dr. Christian Heim wants you all to know this and wants you all to make sure that there is more love in the world. That's right. Thank you very much for saying that, Sarah. That's exactly right. (laughs) And thank you so much for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Me too as well. (laughs) 